President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views are of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a great show lined up today. Um, a guest in the studio came down from New Jersey, Peter Bookvar. Thanks for coming down to the studio, Peter. It's great to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. We're going to get uh, Professor Siegel to comment on the markets. I know you guys have joint interests. You talk a lot about monetary policy, the markets. The professor talks about a lot of those things, um, valuations of the market. Professor, we've we got a, a big week in terms of news. Um, I know yeah. you've been focused a lot on tax reform front. Um, we got a little bit of details in terms of the initial outline. Now we're going to start doing some negotiations on what tax policies everybody's going to try to coalesce around. Um, any thoughts here, take on, on what's been happening? Yeah, uh, there is an awful lot to, to talk about. First, I, I'd like to, to mention um, that uh, the recent data, particularly that trade data and the revisions, have bumped up Q3 GDP to about 2.5%. Actually, uh, macro advisors had it up to 28 and just kind of moved it down a little bit. Now, this was under 2 uh, just uh, as an estimate a couple weeks ago, and what what I think it's remarkable is given the hurricanes and the amount of, you know, damage and destruction and services that are down, uh, two and a half would be absolutely remarkable for uh, Q3. Uh, and it gives me more faith that we might be moving indeed into a 3% GDP growth economy. Obviously, we can talk about that issue. As you know, the final estimate of second quarter did uh, – just bump up a little bit to 3.1%. But uh, I'm very impressed by the uh, basic strength in the economy, um, despite the, the hurricanes um, and uh, the, the destruction that, that it caused. Um, on the inflation front, again, the news is a- extraordinarily uh, good. Uh, I mean, we got the PCE uh, deflator, which is, of course, the one that the Fed looks at. Uh, again, uh, came in a bit under estimates uh, year over year is is running well below two percent. Um, I just saw a headline just about a few minutes ago go across the Bloomberg screen that uh, Fed pre- uh, Fed President Philly President uh, Pat Harker uh, said he might be cautious on a rate increase in December. Now it's interesting because I had uh, breakfast with him Tuesday. And I, uh, I gleaned exactly the same sentiments, and it somewhat surprised me because uh, Harker had been somewhat of a, a hawk uh, in, in terms of the um, interest rate uh, profile going forward. And uh, he definitely has turned much more cautious. Remember, there are only four dots 
in the dot plot two weeks ago that uh, that showed that uh, only four of the FOMC members actually wanted to keep the rate unchanged. Um, I, I'm sure he probably put the Dow as a one rate higher, but the data is coming in such that uh, not so sure we're going to get uh, anywhere near universality on whether a December uh, cut uh, is coming. Of course, as you mentioned, the big news in a way is the tax news. I, I was actually surprised it moved the markets. It really did. I mean, the headline is a 1.5 to $2.5 trillion increase in the deficit over the next 10 years. And they looked at that and said, oh, wow, okay, well, that's about a 10% increase in government debt, and the market's going to have to absorb it. Don't forget they also have to absorb the, uh, the, the tapering, the deleveraging, the quantitative tightening that the Fed is undergoing over the next two or three years. And that might put a little pressure on the bond market. And we, we've seen, you know, the yield on a 10-year, uh, you know, uh, nudge up, nothing frightening. But, uh, you know, it's uh, 232. And this was a rate that looked like it was going right down to two zero just a couple of uh, weeks ago. Um, you also had Gary Cohn coming across on the headline just uh, an hour ago saying we have negotiation on the uh, deductibility of state and local taxes. Well, <laughs> you know, that was one of the few revenue raisers that, uh, that actually uh, the Trump plan had into. And if they're willing to relinquish that, uh, I mean, you basically throw up your hand and say there's really no fight against the deficit. Um, and uh, we will see a big increase in, in uh, you know, government debt uh, hitting the market. Now, I'm not saying that's going to cause a crisis. I'm not saying that will cause an enormous increase in in rates, but um, clearly uh, uh, Trump is not at all bending to the conservatives in the Republican Party that are uh, hold, trying to hold fast on government debt and the deficit. Although I did see, <laughs> I did see that nine years from now that he's going to balance the budget with five. Uh, uh, trillion dollars of unspecified cuts in spending. Uh, let's see if I would not hold my breath for that. Professor, let me bring in Peter Bookvar to the conversation. Um, and and we, I know we'll go back and forth with you throughout the first half of the show here. Um, Peter Bookvar, he's chief market analyst with the Lindsay Group Macroeconomics Market Research Firm, but you are also the co-chief investment officer of Bookmark Advisors and asset management firms. We'll talk both about your macro views as well as your, your asset management views. But uh, the professor just started off with a sort of general overview. Any comments on what you heard there? Uh, yeah, the, the U.S. economy again, I think, is uh, you know still around two percent. What will get us north of that is obviously hopes for tax reform. But uh, one positive is, uh, that we've seen is uh, a recent uptick in capital spending. Uh, on the other side, I think consumer spending is still very tenuous. We saw uh, today in, uh, the savings rate uh, is near the lowest level in at least ten years, and that's not that, that just tells you when the savings rate is down to three point six percent that. Uh, consumer spending is a somewhat tenuous um, situation. And um, we also have to remember what is going to be the sensitivity to uh, further tightening by the Fed, whether it's another rate hike or it's quantitative tightening uh, to changes uh, in the economy. So getting to 3% is is uh, maybe in the short term a, a cyclical bounce, but uh, it, productivity is not going to all of a sudden magically uh, uh, spike uh, within the next year to get it to that to, to a sustainable three percent, it's something that's going to take some time. Uh, we hope that 
the incentives for capital spending, particularly in this tax bill, will get us to a higher rate of productivity. But with, with the size of the labor force growing at a small pace, um, 3% on a sustainable rate is extraordinarily difficult, even though we would all love to see it. But you know, things don't happen in a vacuum. Well, let's just say yeah. we get 3% growth. I promise you the 10-year yield is not going to be sitting at 23 I promise you Patrick Harker will be agreeing to more rate hikes. And the problem is is that we've created this massive debt structure uh, and excessive leverage, and an economy over the past at least 15 to 20 years has been medicated on artificially low interest rates. Well, it's that sensitivity that will cause some reaction to a rise in interest rates, or a reaction to a, a shrinking of the Fed balance sheet. So again, we're not just going to go to 3% in a vacuum. Tax reform is not going to happen in a vacuum because with 4.4% uh, unemployment rate, the demand for labor will most likely push up uh, labor costs. Well, labor is the biggest cost of uh, a company's profit and loss statement. Uh, lowered interest expense was a dramatic contributor to the earnings rebound out of the recession. Well, that lever is not going to be pulled any longer. So people can't just do the analysis on tax reform and what that means for growth in a vacuum. They have to analyze all aspects of a company's income statement uh, to really uh, get, a, get a, a fair take of, of what's going to happen uh, in response. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I do think, I'm, as I say, uh, I'm, I'm impressed that this quarter uh, at least is running. Now, don't forget the actual quarter. Uh, you know, we're going to be getting data on this quarter in the next month, and we might see that the hurricanes have done more damage to some of the uh, numbers than we now anticipate. But, um, uh, you know, if we could do two and a half, just think of the rebuilding that's going to take place fourth quarter, first quarter next year, second quarter next year. Um, you know, that that very well could push us into uh, the 3% zone. Now, I know even one year is not a long-term picture, and you're right. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time on our program uh, this program behind the market talking about the decline in productivity and, you know, when it'll end, and that's really one of the signature features of the um, rebound from the, uh, the, the recession. Uh, you know, when, when, we'll, when will we see that uh, actually uh, happening? Um, and when we're gonna, if we're going to see any infrastructure happening, uh, who's going to be paying for that infrastructure now that the tax cuts look like another uh, $2 trillion uh, on that side. One thing I should say in terms of uh, if we get a 3% economy, yes, we will have higher interest rates, but we're also going to have higher growth of corporate profits. So I'm not particularly sure that the stock market is going to be all that negative. Uh, you know, certainly I wouldn't hold bonds in that situation, but um, stocks uh, will certainly gain, I think, through a rise in productivity and uh, GDP growth. Well, that, that also assumes a constant P.E. ratio. Um, I think if interest rates go up uh, and as the Fed shrinks their balance sheet, uh, I don't think we can assume that the P.E. ratio stays the same. We've seen a dramatic expansion of multiples, um, right. certainly since uh, QE Infinity started in early 2013. And uh, certainly it's been multiple expansion and much less so earnings growth that has uh, led to the rise in the stock market. So uh, I think it'll be this tug of war between the hopes for uh, better earnings, but again, 
that's going to have to be weighed with higher interest rates and higher labor costs. At the same time, uh, the potential multiple compression that we're going to see with the rise in interest rates. And we also have to remember as part of this mix, in my opinion, uh, is, is going to be what the ECB does next year uh, in terms of where global interest rates go as well. Professor Sue, I know yeah. what you uh, you tend to think about as forward-looking return assumptions given P/E ratios today, but maybe I could just get Pete, and we'll get you to sort of re- way back. But Peter, so when you think about P/E ratios, we look at you know P/E ratios say call it twenty on the S&P five hundred today. Maybe you look at a CAPE ratio, so you think the CAPEs are higher. Talk about how you would say valuations are, and just no one knows the future, but say five to ten years, how do you take current valuations to look forward for a real return over the next five to ten years? Well, I. I... You know, one thing about looking at P ratios, you know, you're just picking one year's earnings and 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 valuing it today on on current uh, um, margins. But you know, profit margins are are very high. It's been that way for years, so it's not like that's anything new. But um, if that that's the gets the importance of if we're going to start to see higher labor costs, well, that's the biggest driver of of, of profit margins. And if you're going to see higher interest expense, that's going to also impact profit margins. So, you know, but that that that's what low interest rates do. I mean, the Fed, all they do is they encourage debt accumulation and they pull forward economic activity, but they also pull forward uh, returns. We've So I believe we pulled forward many, many years of returns because that's the point of monetary policy. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, the economy can still chug along. I mean, at some point we're going to have a recession just based on the, the age of the current expansion, but you know, putting that aside... Uh, you could get a situation where the stock market just sort of you know, chops around or has a bear market, then has a bull market, with the net result being very little return over the next five to 10 years. Again, because we pulled forward, in my opinion, a lot of the returns uh, in the future to now. But again, that's the point of monetary policy. Monetary policy doesn't create anything that wouldn't have happened on its own. They just affect the timing of it. And I think oh. the cent- the Fed and, and central banks around the world have done that to a dramatic extent. Well, uh, you know, I, I have to say I, I disagree with you on uh, some of the things you said about interest rates. It's, uh, I've, I've maintained that interest rates are low for fundamental reasons, uh, which is low growth, high demand for liquidity, risk aversion, um, de, uh, the de-risking of pension portfolios, which corporations have done. Uh, the demand for bonds has been extraordinary, um, uh, you know. And, and one of the reasons, and one of the ways you can see that, if you think that the Fed is, so to speak, artificially keeping, which I don't think so. I think these are the way the interest rates are, artificially keeping them low. Then we would see it in the ten-year, we would see it in the thirty-year, we would see it in the long term. But all those rates are extremely low too. So, I mean, you know, the, the argument that, you know, they're just pressuring it and it's all going to release later on is totally disbelieved by actually every instrument in, in the capital markets. Well, historically speaking, uh, before really the crisis, the Fed funds rate uh, was 200, 300 basis points above the rate of inflation. So if yeah, we were in normal, two, yeah, if we were in normal times, the Fed funds rate that was growing at three, where productivity was you know two two and a half percent, and population growth was higher. We've had a two percent reduction in real GDP growth virtually. I mean, I'll lead to a two percent reduction in real real uh, interest rates. Um, well, his, also nominal GDP uh, typically is where the ten-year yield is. So even if nominal GDP is three and a half percent. Right now we're at two thirty. Uh, also, negative interest rates elsewhere 
that influences our yield curve, I don't think is a very normal yeah. but, uh, level but as there's well. Also, there's also term. There's also. Well, I think the treasuries have taken on a a, um, a, prob- a, a hedge premium, and, and there's one reason why the 10-year and the 30-year are below uh, the um, uh, the nominal growth of GDP. Is that uh, those? Uh, there's been several studies actually that show that the correlation between Treasury bonds and, and other risk assets has turned negative over the last 10 years. So they become hedge assets and they become negative beta assets. People are buying them as hedges, even uh, an expectation of, of of low returns. Now, whether it'll go back to being positive, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, they they certainly weren't during the high inflation years. This, of the uh, you know late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, and then they were positive beta assets, and and then the term premiums were really really high, but in low inflation periods, and you need to take around the, around the Great Depression and other periods like that, they often become negative beta assets. I don't know if that's disappearing, unless you think inflation is going to you know start roaring ahead at at some big level. So. You know, I think I, there's, as I say, that's a fundamental reason, this negative correlation, negative beta, slow economic growth, higher risk aversion. I mean, the aging and the baby boomers, they're not, you know, putting in as much equity into their portfolio. And there's a, there's a lot of fundamental reasons. Uh, life expectancy going up. A recent article by um, uh, in the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, of I think of Cleveland that that talked about the fact that real interest rates go down as life expectancy goes up as long as retirement age doesn't go up along with it and that's a powerful effect and there's real effects that are depressing interest rates that in my opinion are far in excess of what the central banks are doing. Uh, let me just reintroduce my guest here in the studio. We have Peter Bookvar. He's chief market analyst with the Lindsay Group. We have Professor Siegel on the phone. Um, Peter, what's your thoughts on this negative beta asset, you know, discussion? I mean, it, to me, in, in a lot, one of the that that's absolutely been a true statement that the the, the bonds and the stocks are moving in the exact opposite direction. Your point was that if you see interest rates starting to rise, that could put PE pressures down. And you haven't had this period where bonds have declined and stocks have declined in in a long time. Is that what you think could be the next driver? Well, of a look at the bull market of the '80s and '90s in equities. It coincided with the bull market in bonds, and I think. We've seen a yeah, continuation. That was, that was lowering inflation, right? Right, but I'm just saying that they were positively correlated. They both mm-hmm. rallied at the same time, and we pretty much have seen that since 2000, uh, 10 years ago when central banks started easing. Bonds rallied and stocks rallied. So, hasn't really been that negatively correlated um, for very long, you know that long. Now, I think at some point, um, you know, I'm I'm of the belief that that you know if there's a bubble in the world, it's in global bonds, particularly in Europe, that. Um, if that were to unwind in any way, well, U.S. interest rates would be somewhat correlated to what goes on in Europe. And that's the scenario where I would see the reverse, where we'd see a rise in interest rates and, and, and a coincident decline in equities. Now, when that happens, I don't know. Um, I'm very focused on how European bonds react to Draghi and, and further tapering. I, I can't imagine that when he's done with his QE program that the German tenure is going to be sitting at 50 basis points. Uh, and just imagine for a minute what happens to all that negative yielding paper when he goes from negative interest rates to even back to zero. 
Professor Siegel, I, one of the other things this week, you know, that's starting to get t- picked up, at least even in the news today, has just been news that Kevin Warsh is is having conversations. When we look at the, I was looking at the predicted site in terms of who's going to be Fed chair next year. We haven't really talked about this discussion yet. And I mean, there's a lot of monetary policy discussion right here with the ECB. But back to the Fed, that we don't know who the, the chair is going to be. Um, Yellen's odds on predicted are going down. We have John Taylor spiking. Kevin Warsh is spiking. Any commentary on what you're seeing on on the Fed side? Yeah, well, you know, as I said, we did get a news thing that 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 Trump is recently or even today meeting with Kevin Warsh. Uh, we also got the statement from Yellen that she had since he uh, she has not recently met with him, um, and she met with him once right after he became president. And hasn't met with him since. So there's a kind of speculation in a way. I think that. Her probabilities are down, and uh, Warsh's are up, and, 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 and maybe, you know, maybe Gary Cohen kind of took a, a, a little bit of a hit later when there was news that, that Trump was not pleased with some of his comments. His might be coming up uh, also. Um, I've, I've expressed, uh, you know, I, I think yeah, any of those three would be all right. I still think Yellen would be the best. I think she's done an excellent job. I think she has the confidence of Wall Street. She's been predictable. Um, she doesn't want to surprise the market. Um, and although, you know, she may lean on the dovish side, I think she's been a, a very balanced chairman uh, uh, on the Fed. I, 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 I am very disappointed that Stan Fisher is leaving uh, next month, personal reasons, not political reasons, because I think he was uh, – you know, I mean, he. If there were, if there are, is going to be a new Fed chief. I think he would be the glue that would really uh, hold a transition together. But you know, Warsh is a very bright person. You know, he's an undergraduate at Stanford. He got a Harvard business degree, cum laude. The only thing is, he's not. He's certainly not an academic. Nor did he get a PhD in economics. If you think that might be. Necessary, of course. Most Fed chairmen in recent years have had one, although Greenspan himself got one belatedly, um, quite a few years after he did a lot of graduate study. But um, you know, he's a very bright person, and uh, I, he's been on the board, and um, he might be a bit more hawkish. But I think he would. I, I, I you know, I certainly would not fear if Kevin Warsh became, uh, or or if Gary Cohen became. Uh, John Taylor is still mentioned. I thought he was very early on a favorite, uh, but I think one of the important things that Trump and the Trump administration has to decide, if they're going to do these tax cuts, and if they still have any notion of going forward on the infrastructure, uh, do they want a hawk as the head of the Fed uh, that's going to be you know, plumbing for higher interest rates? Um, you know, the, uh, that, that, I think, has got to be on his mind because that could derail um, the tax cuts and the infrastructure spending. So I think he's got to weigh, and the whole administration has to weigh that factor, and that's one factor that I keep, keeps, I think, Janet Yellen as strongly in the running as she is is because she would not necessarily veer towards a much higher interest rate profile. Um, that uh, something some people believe that Kevin Warsh um, or even Gary Cohn would uh, would would go towards. Peter, you work with the the Lindsay Group, and and I I know Larry's name is bandied about in uh, 
the circles here also have potentials, although not high on the predicted site yet. Um, any commentary quickly on well, your, I, your I take ha- there? I have to agree with uh, the professor in that Trump wants to keep the party going, and Yellen would do that. Kevin Warsh would be more hawkish. He doesn't he didn't believe in QE. He didn't believe in zero interest rates, particularly for seven years. Uh, so he would be certainly more hawkish. And uh, I don't, you know, if you, the last 13 rate hike cycles by the Fed post-World War II, 10 put us into recession. So is this going to be the uh, one of the, is this going to be the fourth one that does not? Or is this going to be joining what typically happens? And if you bring on a Warsh and you bring on a John Taylor, you even bring on a Larry Lindsay, uh, well, they're going to be um, more circumspect of the powers of central banking and be more inclined to be tightening policy. Uh, Yellen would obviously be very gradual. She's an uber dove. She has been an entire career. And uh, she'd be more inclined to keep this going. Not only that, if we were to have a downturn, she'd be very quick to lower rates back to zero and she'd be uh, all set to ignite you know, QE4, 5, or 6, whatever it takes. Uh, it hasn't worked. There's no real uh, evidence that it did. But you know, that's their inclination is to use monetary policy uh, to affect change. And I think that the Kevin Warsh and, and some of the others bandied about uh, are less inclined to think that. So uh, I guess it depends on uh, what, what Trump wants. But I think, yeah, I agree with Jeremy that ideally he'd like Yellen to stay on. But let me just ask well, you. What about your, what is your, if you have to give a point prediction, would you, would you, would you say? Um, I, I, I like Kevin Warsh. I think he'd be great for the job. I think Taylor would be great for the job. I just, I just have a, a problem thinking that Trump wants that. Now, I, I have to believe in their meetings are saying, okay, guys, we have this tax reform that's in place, that's going to be in place hopefully in 2018. That's going to create, obviously, the hope for a greater growth. So we'll be able to sustain higher interest rates and a shrinking of the balance sheet. Therefore, if we bring on Warsh, we bring on Taylor, bring on Lindsay, everything should be okay. That's maybe what they're banking on. I mean, one one of the things with Trump is that is it at this stage of the the, the economic cycle, being as aged as as it is, uh, can the tax cuts sustain and lengthen what is would be typically a, a recovery in its ninth inning, or is monetary policy with the tightening of it going to uh, end the game, which it has historically has? And okay, well, if that's the case, do you want to end the game now? So we can recover by the time it's 2020 when he runs for reelection, or do you have a yelling type and just try to keep on going for as long as you can? Um, let me just, Peter. Let me ask you. I mean, because we're we got about five more minutes in the first half of the, the conversation before we bring on our second guest. Let me just say, you know, you've talked. We talked a lot about the macro discussions, Fed policy. But maybe we could sort of boil it down to the other side of your business, where you talk about bookmark advisors. You're managing money for clients. Um, trying to distill all these observations into sort of portfolio recommendations. Talk about how you're positioning bookmark advisors' portfolios for this macro scenario, equities, bonds, U.S., foreign, maybe sort of walk through your high-level positioning. Well, being a a value investor, it's not easy. Uh, But that's what low interest rates do. It it inflates asset values and makes it more difficult for value guys like me to find opportunities. Um, Luckily, over the last couple of years, I've found more opportunities outside the U.S. than in the U.S., Emerging markets, which I still like, uh, India, Brazil, South Korea, uh, even Vietnam, China, has, have been more interesting to me from a valuation perspective than the U.S. 
within the U.S., uh, valuations are, are stretched, but I find opportunity in agriculture, for example, which has basically completely missed the bull market over the past uh, at least since the top down in 2011. So my equity portion is only about 35 40% with you know, 20% in fixed income with a bunch of that in emerging markets. Um, and uh, luckily, I've been in gold and silver this year, which is up about uh, 10 to 12% because of uncertainty with monetary policy and, and the weakness in the dollar. And you know, I still think that has uh, a ways to play out. But I also think you know, having some cash is, is good and that there's optionality. Uh, you know, I, and again, I don't know how long this, this, this party will go, but uh, I think the deeper the Fed gets into tightening, uh, the more uh, people should be watching their back for any asset price response to that, which if you have cash, you actually would want that because then you can buy things cheaper. And and you have some fixed income, but you're worried about rates moving. Well, that's why I'm the shorter end of the curve. Okay. And um, I think with the uh, yield cushion in emerging markets plus the currency kicker, uh, you, you're a little more insulated than that rather than other parts. But at least on the shorter end of the curve, you're uh, better protected. Professor, any, any comments on just general? Yeah, just, just some closing comments. More than any other president, uh, uh, Trump has mentioned the stock market hitting records in many of his talks in terms of uh, gloating in a way about how well the economy is, is doing. So um, in a way, I know I hear what you say, the economy might take uh, raising rates if there's good enough, but if it's going to take a hit on the stock market, um, you know, that's something Trump administration, I think, is not going to like. So, uh, uh, you know, that has to factor also. A very difficult decision that that he has given pri- priorities about the, the Fed chief, and that's why it'll be remain interesting for the next five months uh, <laughs> why he has to select one. Yeah, and the funny thing is he called this a big, fat, ugly bubble when he was campaigning. He says a lot of things and then reverses, so I'm not not surprised. As people say, there's a tweet for everything here that you could always come back to find the old Trump tweets, and it always gives you interesting context. Yep. Professor, thanks for sticking with us. Thank you very Uh, much. We've been talking with Peter. Thanks, same here. We've been talking with Peter Bookfar here in the studio. Um, We're going to be talking on the second half of the program with the China Emerging Markets, Leland Miller of China, Beige Book International, one of the foremost China watchers. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Here in our Wharton studio, we have Peter Bookfar, Chief Market Analyst at the Lindsay Group. Joining us by the phone, Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International, really one of the world's leading analytics and economic forecasting firms focused on China. Not a lot of people producing the type of insights that Leland is producing on China. Uh, Leland, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, the two, the three of us uh, all met recently in, in Cam Kotak's uh, re- trip to Maine. So it's a nice Cam Kotak reunion discussion here. Um, Hi, Leland. <laughs> Hi, Peter. How are you? Good, thanks. You? Good, good. Everything's everything's peachy. So, so Leland, um, you're you're out with your latest beige book. Um, a lot of insights that that people don't have the data. Maybe you could just for a for our listeners tuning in for the first time on what China Beige Book's mission is. Talk a little bit about your firm and the type of reports that you're putting together. How it differentiates versus just the standard China statistics that we get out, and we can drill into some of the insights from your latest reports. Sure. Well, you know, we created China Beige Book back in. 
2010 uh, for, for one reason, and that was we, we didn't trust what the market was seeing on Chinese data. That's principally because we don't trust what the Chinese government puts out on Chinese data. Uh, but the real problem is, look, you, you take away the potential manipulation, you take away the lack of transparency, uh, you, know, you take away the other problems. The reality is there's still not enough of the kind of data that investors need to be able to make intelligent decisions, whether you're a hedge fund, whether you're a, a corporate trying to expand in China. There's just not enough good data out there. And so we started this uh, with, with the belief that if, if we wanted better data, we had to do it ourselves. So we cut the country up into eight regions. We track seven separate sectors. We track 34 separate subsectors. And then, of course, we, we go way beyond things like GDP. I mean, we, we track... Uh, you know, dozens of growth metrics. We track the labor market. We track the credit environment. We track the shadow credit environment, which is always interesting. We track inflation. And what this basically is, is a ground-up panoramic view of the Chinese uh, economy that's not seen through the eyes of the Chinese leadership. It is the real deal. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it has allowed us for years now to be able to predict credit crunches before they happen, uh, ups and downs the economy before they happen, macro inflections in the economy before they happen. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite insightful. Yeah, and for, I think, so much of the world does revolve around China. You have this competition between the U.S. and China, really for the long-term future of the global economy. But you look at the last decade, so much of global GDP growth has come from China. So they are a really big force. So it's, it's critical insights that you're garnering there. Um, so maybe your high-level view, um, what's, what's happening in China today? Well, I think uh, this is an interesting time for us because we're seeing what everyone else is seeing and what the Chinese leadership is seeing as of right now. So, uh, you know, hats off to what the Chinese uh, leadership has been able to do over the past year plus. You know, a year and a half ago, we were sitting, sitting in the middle of a, uh, a contagion and uh, crisis environment, and there has been an unmistakable on-year recovery. So all these things that you're hearing about where manufacturing is improving and the economy is improving and, and the labor market's improving, these are all true. Um, and so what we saw and we have seen so far in 2017 uh, is, a, is a much improved economy and a, uh, a rather good situation for the party congress, which is going to start in a few weeks, where we break from the consensus and we break from the, you know, the Chinese homegrown view uh, is, is what price was paid to get us this 2017 performance and what is likely coming next. And we, we have some different, uh, different views on that from the, from the, uh, the mainstream. And, and Leland, you're leaving us hanging there, and that would be a, a slowdown in growth after the Party Congress, some more emphasis on deleveraging that would impact uh, growth as well. What do you see into right. 2018? Yeah, you know, we're definitely going to see a long-term uh, slowdown. Whether we see that in early 2018 depends on whether President Xi decides he wants to uh, be more aggressive early on uh, with, with some of our structuring elements. I think what we're really at odds with people on are two things. Uh, the first is deleveraging. Um, we do not see deleveraging. Uh, we have a very expansive and extensive credit survey. Um, we track what thousands of firms are telling us. We, tell, we track what hundreds of bankers are telling us. And there is no deleveraging going on in the economy right now. Uh, what we've been seeing uh, during parts of the year, second quarter, for instance, is slower additional leveraging. We well, that's their definition of deleveraging, right, is slower well, rates of increase? <laughs> 
it, it, yeah, it's, it's deleveraging with Chinese characteristics. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, essentially we, what we saw in the second quarter was at least uh, uh, hopeful on that measure. What we've seen in the third quarter is the exact opposite. So there are reasons why people think deleveraging is going on. And, we, you know, it's the drop in wealth management products. It's the drop in things like negotiable certificates of deposit, which we are absolutely seeing being cut down. You know, the, the government is cracking down on those, and a lot of people have read into this as being deleveraging. Uh, but what we're seeing on the corporate side, this is what the, the, the game is being played inside, inside the banking sector. On the corporate side, this is not happening. Uh, the real economy is actually borrowing more. Uh, the rates slid quite considerably in the, in the third quarter. We saw bank rates slide. We saw bond yields uh, slide. We saw shadow banking rates slide quite considerably. So the idea, uh, and I think this is where it's so important, the idea that China's economy is, has hit this quite impressive level of performance despite deleveraging is wrong. It has not been deleveraging. It is not deleveraging now. And if it decides to do, uh, if the leadership decides to push forward a, a true deleveraging campaign in 2018, then this is going to be a lot more traumatic, I think, than, 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 uh, than most analysts are expecting. Now, there, there's some very public um, debates on China and some very bearish views out there. Um, Kyle Bass, in particular, has, has made this very bearish case, all tied to leverage, that they built up this uh, $40 trillion in, in debt and say that he... I, just heard him on a podcast. There's like two trillion in equity, and and there's going to be massive problems. The currency is going to um, have to depreciate as a result. Um, how do you contrast any of your views from the typical very bearish Kyle Bass narrative, particularly to the currency and just problems and loans that are out there? Yeah, uh, we, we've we've always seen things different than than Kyle Bass and, and some others. Uh, you know, this is not to pick on him, of course. Yeah. But uh, look, the, the the there are these problems. You have a huge non-performing loan problem. You have a lot of the problems that he cites. They're real problems. But the I think the point that's often missed is that China is not a commercial financial system, which means that the the, the way crises develop in, in in Europe or the United States, uh, in Western economies are not the way the problems uh, become acute problems in the Chinese economy. So when you have this wall of capital, you have three trillion reserves, you have uh, hundreds of billions more in the banking system, uh, it sounds like not that much to people for some reason, uh, but the reality is, is when you have a problem, you, you have a government that can take this tidal wave of capital and slosh it from one side of the economy to the other to plug holes in the ship. So is this a recipe for success? No. It's a recipe for long-term stagnation and many, many problems. But what it suggests is that the idea of an acute crisis, similar to what happened in the U.S. or what happened in China, or what happened in Europe, is, is much less likely. The Chinese can continue to, to, to solve this problem uh, in nonproductive ways a lot longer than people think. And so how do you think the currency plays out over time? Is it something that you think they, you know, there's one narrative that they're gonna, they got to depreciate the currency to make more competitive exports. There's the other narrative that they're trying to go towards a consumer economy, and so they don't want to depreciate the currency so they can manage inflation risk. And, you know, they're going to be importing a lot more. They're not really exporting, sort of consuming their own goods. How do you think the currency plays into their, their calculus? Yeah, I don't think there's any question they do not want to devalue the currency. Uh, they haven't. They don't want to, and, and we don't expect them to. Now, you know, the entire push is, is to empower the consumer economy, and one of the ways you do that is 
putting more purchasing power in the pockets of, of households to be able to spend. You do that by having a stronger currency. Now, that's not the only factor here. Uh, there's stability and, 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 and other problems. But the idea that the Chinese can cure anything with a major devaluation it has, has been a flawed argument. Uh, that does not mean we will not have a capital outflow crisis in the future, or maybe even in a not-too-distant future. When you have a stronger dollar, you're going to have the, the yuan under more pressure, and you're going to have uh, a real quagmire for the for the PBOC. How do you handle this? So you could see the, the, the Chinese currency blowing off steam in the event of a very strong dollar, a 2%, 3%, devaluation. Uh, the idea that they would step in and do something like a 20% devaluation uh, is, is just absolute nonsense. That's, that would accomplish nothing except setting them in a deeper hole, uh, and they certainly uh, don't want to do that. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We have Leland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book. We have Peter Bookfar, Chief Marketing Analyst at the Lindsay Group here in the studio. Um, and, you know, one of the other issues that I think about, and I'm curious to get your opinion on, Leland, is, you know, the whole, one of the big discussions is Trump versus Xi on, you know, just all sorts of political elements. And you have the North Korea crisis going on now. And so much of that is just a, a proxy with China in terms of their back and forth in, in a lot of ways. How, how do you feel like Trump is managing that situation? Um, how much do you think they should be pushing China on North Korea? And, and what else can they do? Does any your take on that whole Asia politics that, that's going on over there? And, and quite frankly, they don't either, which is why they just started a, a new review by the National Security Council to, to create a more coherent China policy. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons the Chinese had such a good 2017 so far is that none of the expected developments, whether it was South China Sea tensions, whether it was uh, tariffs from Trump, uh, none of these things actually came to, came to pass. Uh, the president, uh, President Trump, has for a while said, "Look, the, the Chinese need to help us out on X, Y, and Z, and we, you know, we'll hold off on, on, uh, on these other things and, and, until we see this help." Now, I think what everyone knows but doesn't want to admit is that the Chinese cannot solve the North Korea problem. They have done more than they usually do. They've actually done qu quite a large amount uh, in the, re you know, the recent se last several months in terms of trying to put more pressure on North Korea. That doesn't have a solution. Um, and eventually the president is going to tire of the fact that China cannot solve this problem. Uh, separately, you have all the pressure on the trade side. And separate from that, you have uh, South China Sea going completely off the radar for the last you know, nine months or so. That will not continue. And, and I think that the real tea leaf to watch in the relationship, yeah, it's trade, yeah, it's North Korea, but the real one is South China Sea. Because a lot of people expected a very robust policy from President Trump in terms of pushing back on the Chinese positions in the South China Sea, that has not happened. But I think as frustration boils over on economic and trade matters, on North Korea not being able to solve, you're going to see a more aggressive pushback by the United States in South China Sea. And that really is, is, your, uh, is your tell that uh, the relationship is changing. Peter, now you, you're, you're in our first part of the discussion, you were bullish emerging markets. You have overweight positions on emerging markets. China's clearly a key variable here. I mean, how do you look at China from what everything Leland has said so far? See, so luckily, I've been long China the last couple of years. And, and I, I, you know, I do go back and forth uh, and try to merge this very positive long-term 10, 20-year story with all the short-term issues that, that they face with this massive debt bubble and this constant 
uh, hamster wheel of, of stimulus to get to this magical, arbitrary 6.5% growth rate at, at all costs and the, the negative long-term impact that will have. And uh, so I, I, I truly go back and forth. I mean, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a good question um, because I'm not as confident today about returns over the next year than I was a few years ago when the markets were much cheaper. Uh, I still think big picture long term, uh, I'm very positive on Asia generally in terms of growth. And uh, China's obviously going to be a big part of that. And their economy is going to be bigger than the U.S. in 20 years potentially, and depending on how you calculate their numbers. Um, so I, I do go back and forth. I, I don't have a, a confident answer today as I did maybe a year or two ago. And, and Leland, when you think about where the sentiment is talking to clients, I mean, do you think people – um, you talk to a lot of institutional managers. Are you, do you think people are positioned appropriately for China? Do you think they they are too pessimistic, too optimistic? How do you think the the sentiment reads are today? Uh, well, you know, a year and a half ago, people were way too pessimistic. Um, you know, when in January, February, two thousand sixteen, you know, we saw considerable weakness in the economy. But when things started to turn, um, it was clear that, that they. This devaluation thesis was wrong, and 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 people were 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 way too bearish. Uh, now they're they're on the other side of the spectrum, and you know it's not that we are not bullish on uh, certain aspects of the Chinese economy, and you know we see that that President Xi is going to ensure a certain level of growth for a while with the new with the new you know post party Congress. So we're we're not expecting things to to, to blow up by any means, uh, but I think the people have become deeply complacent about China because of what happened last year. And, and I was speaking at a conference a few weeks ago, and I was utterly shocked to hear some credible uh, China watchers uh, on stage saying China's already had their hard landing, that, uh, you know, that, that 2018 is going to be this beautiful year for them, that the reflation story originates in China. Uh, I don't think any of that is true. Um, you know, there is, a, there is a set of circumstances that allowed China to have its performance in 2017. It was a lot of exogenous events like weak dollar and central banks behaving and no Trump tariffs and no South China Sea tensions. And, and domestically, things were quite good as well. And they, they used a lot of monetary firepower, and they used a lot of fiscal firepower, and they, they really went backwards on rebalancing and, and juiced the old economy in order to get this growth. So you had a set of circumstances in 2017 that are almost certainly not going to duplicate themselves in 2018. Uh, in addition to the fact you've got a leadership that that knows it has to do some restructuring and reform uh, and change the narrative on, 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 on growth. So I think people have become too complacent. Mm. I think they've become woefully complacent on the commodity story, which the markets have very, very wrong right now. Uh, and, and so I, I think that uh, I think people are, are preparing, are getting themselves ready for a shock if they, if they remain uh, this complacent. Uh, thinking 2018 is going to look like 2017. Leland, do you think they still hold tight to the 6.5% growth rate uh, in 2018, 2019? Yeah, well, that's, that's, the, that's the, the big question, whether they're going to get rid of the target. Uh, the, number of them, the number itself you know, has never been real. So right. you know, we watch it with one eye because that's what the markets talk about. But the 6.5% six, six was never real. It, it, it could theoretically be more than that right now. It certainly has not been anywhere near 7, 6.5% in the last couple of years. Um, but I think that one of the best things they could do if they, if they were serious about uh, reform in the, in, the, in the short term would be to eliminate the GDP target, to say, 
You know, China is a growing but advanced economy now. To rely on a this blunt growth number is inappropriate. We're going to focus on a lot of different metrics, GDP being just one of them. And they would do themselves a great service to get away from the GDP number. But they're addicted to it. Investors are addicted to it. Um, so it's, it's not clear whether that's going to happen anytime soon. I mean, one of the things I see from just looking at the performance of the markets and the different subsectors of the markets, you've had an explosion really in, say, China tech. Um, now, part of that you could just say is an offshoot of U.S. tech being strong and just the whole ecosystem, you know, carrying over. And even days where you see tech sell off here, you see China tech sell off there more. But so maybe it's just a beta to U.S. tech. But you know, the the big companies, the Alibaba's, the Ten Cents, the the Baidu's, you know, all these big tech consumer plays are, are really been strong. Any sense on that? That just the, the sort of market side of this is that uh, any views on on the stock side? Uh, yeah, actually. So, you know, the view for a lot of uh, non-Chinese on Chinese companies are that, you know, they're this protected group and they're inferior in every way to their Western counterparts, and that just applies across the board. Well, that does not apply to the tech companies. They are quite impressive. Um, some of the things that, that these companies are doing with analytics um, and, and AI and other things are, are, are truly staggering. Um, now, the one point I think people really miss on this is, you know, you look at Alibaba, and people think of this, of, of Alibaba as being Chinese Amazon plus eBay plus whatever else, and it's a national champion, and they say, well, how can this wonderful company that's a national champion uh, ever have any problems? And in addition to the fact that we don't know what's really in Alibaba's books, and people who own Alibaba don't really own the stock, in addition to those concerns, what people don't really realize is that the, uh, companies like Alibaba are not retail companies. They're actually financial services companies. So when you look at what Alibaba is doing right now, uh, you know they have uh, enormous money market funds attached to them, and these are in direct competition with the state banks. And the state banks don't like this. There's, there's been periods of significant deposit flight as the banks, which had capped rates, lost deposits to these money market funds, which are offering much more. So you have this weird dynamic where on the retail side, the you know the Taobao and the Tmall, you know. Companies like Alibaba are, are, are the pride of China, but on the financial services side, they're actually the enemy of a lot of state institutions because they're competing with the state banking system. I think when people are looking at Alibaba's future, for instance, they're looking at one side, they're not looking closer at the other, and that's a real weakness. It is, that, that's interesting as a weakness and not an asset that they can be this diversified angle. So you think that they might get themselves into some political trouble from this competition. That's, that's the weakness? Well, they they do get themselves regularly. They were just forced, you know, Yueba, which is one of uh, Alibaba's uh, uh, one of one of their money market funds, which is forced to drop rates considerably because the state banks complained and said, you, you know, you can't do this to us right now. So there's a constant push and pull on this. You know, economic conditions are pretty good right now. There's there's uh, there's a party congress atmosphere, so so things aren't uh, too tense. But you know, the, the, the whole point of this is that they're not just these protected national champions. There are real domestic issues that they need to deal with, and so they are they are they're on a balance beam trying to play the right side of the party on all of this, just like everybody else. And it's not all clear sailing. Perfect. Uh, so we have about three minutes of final countdown here, Peter. Um, any comments on, on everything you've heard here, just as you think about anything we haven't covered yet? Well, I just want to add with China. I mean, there, there, there are some secular growth stories that will continue to grow regardless. I mean, to me, the, the consumer uh, is still a very interesting story. The environment, healthcare, 
I mean, at least in the environment and healthcare, I mean, th- those are going to be growth industries in China for a long time. Um, so it, it's really, to me, the, the real, real risk is the more cyclical manufacturing, commodity-type sectors that are dependent not only internally but also the rest of the world. But, you know, China has a long way to go in their development, and uh, the, there are domestic exciting stories out there that uh, are going to grow regardless of what happens to the U.S. or the Fed or monetary policy or even uh, you know, Chinese leveraging or deleveraging. And Leland, for you, t- final two minutes. Um, any thoughts, things we have not covered that you may want to make sure that we, we you, you get in there? Right. Well, you know, uh, Peter mentioned commodities, and I think that is an area that, that people are really missing right now. And they're missing that because there's an exciting thesis that most people have bought into, just about everyone seems to have bought into, and it's just wrong. And the the thesis is that China's had very hot demand over the past year, which is true, and they've had these significant supply-side cuts, which is not true, and that has created this this commodity bull cycle, which is just going to get better and better and better for people. Now, what actually happened is you've got your hot demand, you've, you've had sizzling demand, but you've also had these tidal waves of speculative capital entering, we call it the money ball, entering the commodity sector. Commodities, commodities futures have just been inundated with this speculative capital. Now, the supply side stuff is nowhere to be seen. I mean, our survey shows that they have not happened for six straight quarters. The government said they're happening. They're not actually happening. And so the problem here is that... Are they expanding, bull, though, or they're just no longer... They are or they're not, not decreasing. expanding. Expanding. So right. this, now the, it was marginal this quarter after a big expansion in the second quarter, but they're still expanding. And the problem here is that the supply side cuts, the lack of supply side cuts, has been masked for a long time by the fact that there's been really strong demand. Now, our last data, our Q3 data, showed that the commodity sector is actually faltering in Q3. They're actually having they, the metrics were down almost across the board in, at all of all of our coal, steel, aluminum, copper, you name it. And as the demand side becomes more vulnerable, people will start looking closer and they will realize that the supply side stuff has not been happening and you've got a potential for speculative capital to leave and, and then you got yourself a, a real problem. Leland, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining the program with us today. Pleasure. We've been talking with CEO Leland Miller of China Beige Book International. In, in the studio, Peter Bookfar, marketing analyst of the Lindsay Report, also Bookmark Advisors. Thank you for coming down to work with us, Peter. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Um, thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast as well. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you next week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.